This is an ABC podcast. While some countries are making Bitcoin an official currency, a crypto crime wave has taken off. This week on Download This Show, police have seized hundreds of millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency just last year. How is the law keeping up with the technology? Plus, loot boxes in video games are in the spotlight again, with new plans to update Australia's classification code. Instagram ramps up its war on TikTok with a push to hide its rivals' videos. And Snapchat's new augmented reality filter lets you try before you buy. All this and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Ray Johnston and welcome to Download This Show. It is a new episode of Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston, and it is a pleasure to welcome our guests for today. We have Kunal Kalro, founder and CEO of Eugene Labs. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Good to be here. Good to be back. And we have Tegan Jones, Global Reviews Editor at Finder and one of my fellow queens over at the Queens of the Drone Age podcast. Hey, Tegan, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, getting right into it, over in the UK, there were quite a few police raids resulting in seizures of cryptocurrency back in 2020. But that number, it absolutely exploded in 2021. How much crypto has been seized, Tegan? So much. Um, Even just from the Metro Police records, they're showing about £180 million. But what's really concerning is that number actually pales in comparison to what's been stolen by state-funded North Korean crypto hackers. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah, in 2021 alone, 400 million USD was stolen and a recent hack just you know last month or a couple of months ago netted about 600 million USD from one operation. So this sort of thing is global and it's huge. Wow. So how do the police actually find the crypto in the first place and the criminals that are actually connected to it, Canal? All right. So all transactions are logged with, uh, on the blockchain. So with enough time, resources and know-how, they can pretty much be traced back to their origins and destinations, especially as uh, they're linked to an individual at the end of it all. And so uh, the police has been investing lots of time and energy to uh, kind of trace these, uh, trace these wallets back to the origins, uh, back to the original people. Yeah. Isn't the whole idea that when it's logged on the blockchain, though, that that whole process is anonymous? Isn't that the whole idea here? How are they actually able to find them, Tegan? Oh, no, it's not really. (laughs) 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 No, especially if they're not very good at hiding their tracks, it can be done. So uh, one story that I really like is that uh, in the last couple of years, one firm was actually hired to help clear the names of two Venezuelan software developers who were accused of hacking a blockchain because their company was, you know, involved in it. So they seem like the likely culprits and they're actually thrown in jail. But because they were able, this independent firm was able to actually trace the stolen Bitcoin, they were able to find that they were set up. Now, there are ways to make it harder. You can run um, coins through something called a mixer, which the easiest way to really describe that is like uh, money laundering, but for crypto. Right. <laughs> so that can make it harder, but yeah, it can be traced. 
Now, are there any particular cryptocurrencies, you mentioned Bitcoin there, that are more likely to be found used by criminals? Do they have a, a preferred coin of choice, Canal? It's a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. Of course, Bitcoin and Ethereum are included on the list, but there are so many, many, many currencies out there. And uh, one of the things that the police is not doing is disclosing all the different currencies that they are seizing, partly because they don't want to alert criminals of what currencies they're looking into. So Bitcoin, Ethereum, top of the list, but there's a whole lot more stuff out there that's happening. Once it's all been seized by authorities, what happens to this coin? Where does it go? How is it stored? Is it used again? Tegan, enlighten me. So the police are still, by their own admission, saying that they're not very equipped to actually store the seized assets. So they tend to be handled by a third party that has its own secure secure wallet storage and experience with this kind of thing. Um, but what's unclear is if these are actually cold or hot wallets or a mixture of both. Now, a hot wallet is a digital wallet that's accessed online. You'll find that a lot of people who are in the crypto space, especially newbies, might be doing this. But a cold wallet is literally a physical wallet that's not connected to the internet. They're quite expensive. You don't want to lose it, but you'll find <laughs> that they're often used by more seasoned professionals. But again, we don't know what's being used in this case. And in regards to the law, we, we know that technology takes off at a much faster rate than usually the law can keep up with. When it comes to crypto and, and crimes around crypto, are, are we keeping up? Kanal? Um, look, it's a positive update from the British police, but I have to say that these things are operating on a global scale. And if we think about it, on the global scale, I'd venture a guess and say not really. We're not keeping up. Crypto makes it super easy to do global transfers of financial assets, and you'd pretty much need global collaboration on the law enforcement side to address issues like money laundering, funding terrorism, child pornography, and just a whole lot more. And so, so no, I don't think I don't think we're keeping up. But I will say this, let's not bucket it all as crypto's issue because this is an issue within our default financial system just the same and we barely keep up with it in that category. So it's not surprising that we're not keeping up with it in crypto. Now, the Central African Republic, they recently joined El Salvador in making Bitcoin an official currency. What does the process look like to make that happen? One thing that's really important here is regulation, especially when, when it comes to protecting consumers as well as the governments and banks, of course. Um, and another thing is also allowing banks to actually accept crypto. Now, that's a really, really basic explainer, but those are a couple of things that are needed to actually introduce crypto as an official currency. But doesn't making crypto an official regulated government-led kind of currency kind of go against the spirit of it all, Canal? I, I, yes and no. So yes, decentralized currency is a big part of the spirit uh, of Bitcoin and crypto in general, but a big part of it is also freeing up its users from the, cons uh, from the constriction of paper money and use digital assets and currencies as a flexible tool to, uh, to exchange goods and services. And I think that underdeveloped countries have a real use case of using digital currencies like Bitcoin to do trade because it really opens up economic activity in a huge way. So I think that 
I think it, it is still very much in line with the broader principles of crypto, other than the fact that, of course, it's not decentralized. Although the currency is still decentralized, it's just that a centralized government is kind of making it official. Tegan, what would you see as the pros on and cons of having crypto as official currencies for a country like Australia, for example? I think Australia is a little bit different, uh, but certainly when it comes to the underdeveloped countries that we're seeing it really being adopted in, it will allow for people to pay with things without carrying around ludicrous amounts of cash, uh, for example, which we've seen (laughs) as a big problem in the likes of El Salvador and the Central African Republic and a reason why they adopt crypto. Um, And because it's often case used to try and solve uh, economic problems like inflation. One of the best examples that I saw was the Petro, which uh, was the official cryptocurrency actually created by the Venezuelan government because inflation was widely out of control. They were screwed on their oil prices. So the government, which is very much corrupt, tried to create a crypto to solve the problem, but it absolutely didn't, especially when other countries wouldn't recognize it and you're really not allowed to buy it. So Australia is different in that whatever you might think of the government, we're not in the same situation. So I don't think there's as much of a use case, at least yet, for that reasoning to need to make it official. So you don't think Australia will be taking the leap anytime soon? I think that because crypto is so unstable, it makes it really difficult. The prices fluctuate widely due to the lack of regulation. And sure, the same can be said for the lacks of stocks and even fiat currency, but at least there's laws around them. A great example is Elon Musk tweeting about crypto and it's direct market manipulation, but it's perfectly legal. But when he did it rather, but when he did it with say Tesla prices, he got dragged to court. So I think until it is more stable, it makes it a really hard use case for people to put trust in it in an official way on that scale. I really thought we were going to get through a whole episode without mentioning Elon Musk there. Thank you, Tegan, for ruining that <laughs> <Never>. for me. <laughs> what do you think, Canal? Do you think that Australia will be you know, taking the leap into making Bitcoin, for example, an official currency anytime soon? Lol, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, that is the summary of my answer. Um, I, I, I will say this. So in, in underdeveloped countries where uh, moving money is such a massive challenge, especially paper money, and um, you know, families, they often support each other. So if someone's in the hospital, for example, and this is like what actually happens in a lot of African countries, someone's in the hospital, uh, they have to go and pay the hospital for the services provided. And so they'll get their whole family involved to kind of donate a little bit of cash uh, to support the person who's in the hospital. And so someone has to take time off work, collect all this cash from different people, then, you know, take a bus to the city, wherever the hospital is, and then go and kind of deposit this money. Think about the cost to the uh, to the people involved and just the time that it takes to actually do all of that. It's crazy how difficult paper money can be in, um, in underdeveloped countries. And so this digital... Using digital currency like this is just like it's a game changer and it can really make it so easy for people to be able to access goods and services in a really meaningful way and really important goods and services. We're not just talking about, you know, buying KitKat at the store. (laughs) That's absolutely correct. And that's where Australia is so different as well. But 
I would say that the government and banks are trying to get a slice of the pie. In December, the Select Committee on Australia as a Technology and Financial Centre, which is a group that's spearheaded by Senator Andrew Bragg, submitted a report to government making recommendations surrounding better regulation of digital assets in Australia. Um, a, a lot of it is about getting the government in on it. And you even see the likes of ComBank, who announced its move to allow customers to buy, sell and hold crypto assets directly from its app. So they're trying to get in there uh, when we're in a country where we don't really need that solution as much as others do, you know? Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And the communications minister, Paul Fletcher, said last week that a re-elected coalition government would update Australia's classification code with a host of changes, including the use of loot boxes in video games. So let's rewind a little there. Kanal, what is a loot box? Yeah, great question. So it's part of game mechanics and it's, I suppose, part of monetizing gameplay. The summary that I come up with or whenever I try to explain this to my mother, for example, <laughs> is uh, this is a basically a virtual treasure chest. And it's a bit controversial, I guess, because it tends to simulate gambling. gambling. Tegan, what kind of controversy has there been around loot boxes in the last few years? Exactly that, that it really does simulate gambling, especially when you get celebratory animations and music like to reward your brain <laughs> when you open them. So it's really like the pokies. And this is obviously a huge problem when you take into account that they're often marketed towards children or at least they will appeal to children. You generally don't know what you're going to get in loot boxes. You're absolutely right. It's, it's like a treasure chest. And that's fine if you've earned them, but becomes very murky when most of these games offer them as a, a buy-in option or you have the option to, to buy more. And it's even more problematic in games that offer extra abilities or other advantages from loot boxes, giving the people who buy them um, that little edge. So it goes into that whole pay-to-win uh, area. Now, Australia's classification code, it was last updated in 2013, and that was to allow R ratings for video games. What's actually being proposed now with these set of changes, Kanal? So these set of changes, let's be real, are election promises uh, and not real regulation. So it's all a bit vague, as election promises tend to be. They're essentially just saying that they want to change the classification to make loot boxes uh, and also content that sexualizes children, depicts depict suicide, shows violence against women, um, uh, uh, like harder to access, but they're not essentially saying exactly what they plan on doing. At least that's my interpretation of the statements that have been made. Um, uh, to me, it just comes across as naked election promises on the eve of the election, if you ask me. Tegan, what would these changes aim to do? Is it to, you know, protect kids further? Wouldn't an R rating on games like this automatically do that? Is this kind of thing going to work? You know, my first notes on this were literally... Oh, what are the changes aiming to do? Win the election, lol. <laughs> so I'm, I'm obviously in agreement there. But look, the coalition is saying that it's there to help protect children from certain types of content and in-game purchases, but it's really difficult to believe that that's their motive when they've been sitting on a review of our very outdated classification system, which is already almost a decade old, for two years. So yes, I mean, our ratings can help protect kids from um, that kind of stuff. But the problem is the system itself because what we often end up getting is uh, censored content or just straight up banned content 
instead because it's so outdated. What do game developers have to say about these proposed changes? Were they a part of any kind of consultation process, Canal? Not before this announcement, but they were part of the consultation process in the review process that happened about two years ago. Uh, What the coalition government hasn't said is if that review will be incorporated in the promises that they're making or not. And so that's essentially the part of the vagaries that uh, is confusing game developers at the moment. They they don't really know if the recommendations that they've made are actually even going to be included. And so it's, it's all up in the air. Have there been any good suggestions made to protect users, gamers, kids from loot boxes? Does anyone have a a good solution that isn't just updating the classification code, Tegan? I know that we're really lagging well behind, even on the classification game um, in in developed world countries across the world. And so there is a lot of work for us to do just on the classification side. It hasn't been updated for a long time. And of course, the reviews and stuff that they did a couple of years ago have many recommendations. That's a step in the right direction. But I don't think there's like a clear cut winner on a good solution that kind of resolves the problem. It's always just that taking that one step forward. You are listening to Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston and I'm joined by Kunal Kauro, founder and CEO of Eugene Labs, and Tegan Jones, global reviews editor at Finder. And the Instagram versus TikTok battle, it has reached some new heights with Instagram unleashing a weapon. Tegan, what is Instagram doing now to combat TikTok? I'd say it's reaching the same heights as before, but now it's just telling everyone what they already knew. <laughs> so basically what's happening is that uh, they've come out and said that they're not going to serve content to its users as frequently if it has been reposted from TikTok. As I said, this is nothing new and it's been happening for quite a long time now. Okay, so how does the platform actually know that you are sharing content from TikTok, Canal? So the most obvious way is that you'll often see the TikTok logo and watermarks on the content that uh, is posted on Instagram, but it's basically just a copy paste from TikTok and then post it onto Instagram. And so that's a pretty easy way for the algorithms to decipher that that is specifically taken from Instagram. Instagram does say that there's other algorithms that they have in place to be able to detect and predict if the content has been copied from TikTok. But it's unclear and they don't really, while I suppose it's not surprising, they don't really announce how and what they do to make that happen. Yeah. And and Tegan, as you said, we kind of knew that this was happening. Anyone who has used Instagram on a regular basis has noticed that if they have shared their TikToks or other people's TikToks, they're not seen by as many people as Reels content, for example, or native videos on Instagram. But why do we know about this now? Why has this information become public? Is it just Instagram trying to flex its muscle? Probably. I mean, it was announced alongside a couple of other things. So adding occupation tags for users and the ability to tag products in posts to help boost the whole shopping element of Instagram. But my guess is that they're taking this more public stance because they're probably getting increasingly concerned about TikTok becoming the default app for content creators where Insta is now kind of being used to for the repost, like, oh, I might as well throw it up on Reels as well. So there's a bit of a brand identity thing going on. They're not... um. 
I'm going to hate myself for saying this, but they're not the meta anymore. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So realistically, what kind of a threat is TikTok actually to Instagram? I look at the two platforms and I fundamentally see two slightly different audiences. You know, Instagram's a lot more polished. It's a lot more salesy. You're doing a lot more shopping on there. TikTok seems a lot more real and raw and in the moment. Can't they just coexist peacefully? Why does Instagram need to take TikTok down, Kunal? Well, coexisting peacefully is not the capitalistic way, right? So (laughs) (laughs) that's gonna (laughs) that's gonna work. But yeah, so look, I think the last financial report Facebook did wiped about three hundred billion dollars off their company values. So uh, and that was when they announced that, you know, drop in daily users and also the fact that they were having trouble attracting younger users. And so it's hard to see this whole thing, this whole press release, not a reactionary press release to just sort of bolster their uh, uh their value again a little bit more. Uh, but with social media, I suppose, and to answer your question around whether or not they can coexist, it, the game isn't really about, in my mind anyway, isn't necessarily about what the style of content is, but who the audience is, because the audience is everything. And so younger audiences and younger users is the most prized possession in social media. And effectively, even though Instagram and TikTok have different approaches, they're all vying for the same attention of the same audience. And so it's usually a choice between if there's 24 hours a day, they want you to spend, you know, 16 hours of that day on their platform, if not more, because that's the way. Uh, They are trying to vie for attention against each other so they can keep you on their platform longer than the other. It's uh, there's a limited time in the day and they're just trying to get more of it. I would be scared if I was Instagram that people would just choose TikTok. If they're going to have to make videos twice, they're just going to post it on the app that is exclusively video. That makes a lot more sense to me. But what should creators be doing to make sure that people still see their posts on Instagram? Tegan? It's hard to say when we've got this uh, bit of a secret algo buster that they're talking about, but (laughs) one thing that uh, creators have been doing for a long time is using different apps to remove the watermark. That's been a very clear strategy, but you could try that. But, you know, if they're trying other avenues to to find out if theirs wasn't, you know, the first platform this was posted on, then it might be tricky. Yeah, I'm not going to make you know, three or four different videos so that the algorithm no. works for all of the different platforms. I'm just going to choose one and go for it. And honestly, if I'm making a video, it's probably going to live on TikTok. Would would you both agree or would you would you be keen to be making multiple options for the different platforms? I don't even want to make one. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it already takes too long. And I mean, are, are they for new, unique videos? Because if you're just kind of refilming roughly the same content, it could start working like Google where it can kind of tell if it's similar content. It could become a whole thing. And I just there's not enough hours in the day and I need to take a nap. <laughs> Napping <laughs> is definitely a priority already there. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and Snap Inc., the parent company of Snapchat. It held its big partner summit last week, announcing some new updates. What are some of the most exciting things that Snap announced at its latest event, Canal? 
So a lot of it was around augmented reality, which I think is pretty cool. So first up was a, uh, an app called DressUp, which is, or not supposed an app, more of a feature, uh, which is specifically for augmented reality fashion and shopping. So you can kind of take a selfie and project clothes, shoes, accessories onto you. And so you can try clothes while you're on a couch. And, you know, I hate going to the mall, so this is awesome. Uh, really never want to walk into a mall ever again. So this is great. So how does this shopping tool work exactly? You know, if I'm looking at, say, a, a hoodie on a website and I want to see what it looks like on me, it's obviously not going to bolt mould to my body, right, Tegan? I know it looks pretty good. Like yeah. the 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 yeah. I mean, I would give it a go. I don't think it needs to look perfect, right? I think if it just gives you a bit of an idea of what it's going to look like, I think that's a good start. Now, it's probably obviously going to get better over time. We don't know how rough it's going to be at launch, but the actual tech seems pretty solid. Like I really like the idea of this camera kit SDK that is going to allow. Um, companies or brands to actually develop this stuff for their own items, but not only to use on Snap, but to use on their own platforms as well. That's kind of cool. And it's made it really easy where you can actually upload 2D images that will then use that platform to convert it into 3D models that can be viewed in AR. Okay. So yeah, I think that's pretty, I think it's pretty cool. And I would be willing to be slightly forgiving in the early stages. <laughs> Kanal, what kind of brands are on board with this? Um, Puma is one of the ones that are that I know are one of the first ones to be going on board, and especially with shoes, it kind of makes a lot of sense. And yeah, like Tegan was saying, it's more of a vibe check. It's not necessarily like, <laughs> oh, this is going to look exactly like that. It's like, I get the vibe. Got it. Perfect. And is it just for clothes? Um, no, shoes, accessories, and apparently soon surface objects like furniture, handbags, and so on and so forth. See, I remember Ikea doing something very similar to this years ago where you could walk around your home and see what the different Ikea furniture would look like in your spaces. Is it much different from that by what you've seen, Tegan? I don't think so. I think it's just really blowing it out to be on a larger scale um, and not just uh, Ikea furniture that I'm going to put together poorly and then <laughs> want to throw off my balcony later. <laughs> How popular do you think a feature like this would be? You know, who who is still using Snapchat at the moment? Canal? So funny. I was going to ask the same question uh, <laughs> right before this. I was like, wait, are people still on Snap? I thought that was done. Anyway, so wait, turns wait, I out... Can answer that bit. I can answer that bit. My TikTok <laughs> algorithm tells me that they're absolutely there. In fact, dating talk keeps warning me that guys who only want to communicate through Snap are walking red flags. Oh, wow. Oh, that's not good. Sorry to all the Snap <laughs> the users out there. The a bunch of red flags. <laughs> <laughs> but do we have any ideas of, of numbers and demographics on Snap? chat at the moment? Uh, yeah, so there's about 300 million users on Snapchat. So that's not a small number, I would say. And turns out there's a bit of a resurgence and we're, they're back in the running with 13 to 25 year olds. And I'm 2000 years old in comparison to that. So I'm fully <laughs> out of the loop. Uh, and, uh, but that's a pretty highly coveted demographic. Yeah, especially when it comes to the age where they can prod their parents to buy them something. But are they really the peak shopping demographic for this platform? I'm just I'm just wondering if this is a feature that might belong better somewhere on Instagram, Tegan. Yeah, I would agree with that because we have seen that rise in demand for integrated shopping in social media, especially on Instagram. People don't want to have to click away to look something up. 
so this would be an, an even more immersive version of that. But while the Instagram demo might be slightly older, we're more likely to have disposable income, you should never underestimate the power of teenagers. Um, <laughs> and we've seen this for decades, how much that marketing firms and admin, you know, I've been watch, watching Mad Men, you want to capture <laughs> that teenage demographic because they've, they've got spend behind them. Yeah, that would be really interesting. You know, the amount of times that Meta, back when it was Facebook, have tried to acquire Snap, I think there might be a potential merger in the future. That's my prediction. Kanal, would you use this feature? I hate going to Malta, yes. Yes, all the time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I look, I think I would probably be on board for this one as well, but it would have to be really good. It would have to actually fit me properly so that I could get a full full vibe check, as you say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is all that we have time for on the show today. Thank you to Kanal Kauro, founder and CEO of Eugene Labs. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Ray. Yeah, it's really great to be back. And Tegan Jones, Global Reviews Editor at Finder. And you can also hear her and me over at the Queens of the Drone Age podcast. Thanks, Tegan. Thanks for having me back as well. Now, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. I'm Ray Johnston, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.